Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. Today we are going to hear about the book Gender Hurts by Sheila Jeffries, and it's being discussed by Marian Rutiliano and Sheila Jeffries. So over to you two. Good morning. I read this book, I guess about a year after it came out. Um, and uh I, I found I was, you know, the title sort of intrigued me, gender. Um, and I started reading it and flipping through it, and I said, Oh, this is sex role stereotypes, but she's calling it gender. Where did that come from? Um, and gender has become a really a, a watchword now, and and it is what we used to call sex role stereotypes. So um I understood it. Um I understood like a, a an important kernel of the book before I read it by recognizing what what Sheila meant by gender. Um and and I started reading it and you know and and I was horrified by how bad this had gotten because, you know, back in the day, you know, back in the 70s, um, there were a few um, what we would call autogynophilic, you know, cross-dressing transvestic man, men around who would, you know, very few of them. And they could, you know, you could kick them out of places, um, but they were around even then. And I was I was horrified by how how much had had changed and how um, how pervasive um, sex role stereotypes in uh in the you know the the trans um movement had gotten um having said that sheila why why did you write this you know you always ask an author why did you write this book but why did you write this book at the time that you did what was happening back then that you said you know i, I want to write about this thanks marion uh so the book was published 10 years ago and obviously i was writing it you know about sort of 18 months before that and this decade has been absolutely extraordinary. If I could just talk about, um, you know, why it's good to look back at this moment, because I think it, it I think it is. Um, so ten years ago, when I wrote this book, there were no other books on this issue. There was nothing critical whatsoever, except in a few blogs on the internet. There were some excellent and very funny blogs on the internet. Um, which had me laughing away in my office of all these pictures of men you know, standing in front of mirrors in their bedrooms with extraordinary costumes on and so on. Um, but otherwise, there was nothing. Uh, there'd been nothing since Jan Raymond's wonderful book, The Transsexual Empire, back in 1979. But what's happened since is that um, uh, there's been a huge surge, probably most people didn't even think about, transgenderism at the time, apart from it was celebrated. There was all the celebration of the transgendering of kids. There were heroes like Caitlyn Jenner and so on and so on, but otherwise no criticism. I don't think people really thought about it much 10 years ago, uh, but since then there was an absolute surge and it's become, the whole movement's become a terrible menace to women's human rights. But since then, at this moment today, I think there is a reason for celebration and to suggest that after 10 years, that the, um, the men's rights movement went up and now we are at a tipping point. So I would like to uh, just say something about how today in the newspaper, The Observer, which is a left-wing newspaper, and remember it's the left-wing press that has been most gung-ho about supporting the heroism of these men against feminists, in the left-wing newspaper, the, the Observer, which has carried a few pieces, as has the Guardian even, in recent days, this there's a piece in the Observer by the wonderful columnist Sonia Soda about a very good judgment in an employment tribunal uh, around the case of, of the Professor Joe Phoenix, who was forced out of her workplace. 
And she says, and I think this is pretty much the, the strongest thing really that I've seen in anything, certainly in any kind of lefty source, she says um, that um, whether someone is male or female is a matter of reality, imagine that, not belief, and that someone's gender identity or belief about their sex cannot supersede their actual sex for all purposes in society, all purposes in society. And she says, she calls the, the people in the university who, who persecuted Joe Phoenix, as they're persecuting many others in institutions all over the country, she calls them gender bullies. I think that's a wonderful phrase. It gives us a language to use against these people who've been pushing this ideology. Now that's, it seems to me, is a huge and important watershed in this battle that's happened after 10 years. So I'm very pleased it was in the paper this morning and gave me something positive to say right at the beginning. I know it's only in one country, but it is extremely positive. So uh, how did the, the book come to be written? Well, I was writing um, about this issue well before, right back in 1978 in the London Women's Liberation Newsletter, where there was um, a, a lot of discussion about keeping these men out of women's spaces, because there was one man in particular who tried to get into all the women's discos, and we didn't want him. And we had no question about the fact that he was a man. I mean, nobody was really saying anything different at that time. Um, and so in the women's newsletter, I, I wrote, amongst many other women, saying things that it didn't matter whether or not women's uh, men said they were ducks or Boeing 747 airliners. They weren't. It was just fantasy um, and it was just ridiculous. So I, I associated men saying they were women with saying they were ducks at the time very much. Occasionally horses. I occasionally use the word horse. So that was back in 1978. Um, then uh, later on, I didn't actually write uh, about the issue until my book Anticlimax in 1990. Uh, and in there, I had a chapter on men who impersonated women because I was so shocked by the way they behaved and the sort of things they said. I looked at their uh, autobiographies and pulled out all sorts of things in which they said, you know, things like I was lying under the piano at the age of four and I suddenly realized I was a girl, all sorts of extraordinary things. So I wrote about that then. Um, and then in the 19, in 1997, I wrote about the phenomenon of lesbians transing in a journal article because I was horrified to discover that was happening. I was a very, very proud lesbian, part of a, a proud lesbian movement. And the idea that lesbians should have this terrible mutilation and pretend to be men was a shock to me. And then there was, a, I wrote an opinion piece in the Australian newspaper in 2004 um, in, in Australia uh, about how dreadful it was that children were being trans because I became aware of that. So I was aware of and worried about various different parts of this phenomenon. Um, but I wasn't putting it together then. Uh, so what propelled me in 2014 to do, well, it was probably before that, 2013, 2012, to do the whole book, was there were no longer just a few separate absurdities going on in relation to transvestism. There was a whole landscape opening up of harms to many constituencies, uh, those who tried to change them, themselves, their wives and partners, lesbians, who fell victim to this medical malpractice, children, as well as to feminism and the rights of women in general. And I realized that I, I needed to write a whole book about this. In fact, in 2007, I had submitted a proposal for the book to a publisher 
and they said they didn't think there would be interest. And so I, I, it was, it only came out seven years later, but I think that's good because I think it was the right moment. Things had got so bad and there was the beginning of a, an awareness by 2014. We have so, the first slide. I'm sorry to interrupt, Cheryl. I wanted to that's fine. That's slide fine. up. Um, you um, postmodern and you say postmodern and queer theorists share with transgender theorists the idea that gender is a movable feast that can be moved into and out of, swapped and so forth. Gender used in this sense disappears the fixedness of sex, the biological basis that underlies the relegation of females to their sex cast. Female infants are identified by biology at birth and placed into a female sex sex cast. Um, which kind of, you know, dovetails with, you know, when when you ask, people see the title. Um, when I saw the title, what is gender? You know, what else has it been called and why is it so damaging? And I saw that, it that oh, this is what we used to call sex role stereotype. So, you know, why is it so damaging and, and, and why the title? Why not gender ruins the world or gender is a tool of oppression? And I'm not necessarily serious about those titles, but you said hurts. Um, so... You know what? What is gender, and why did you? Why are you saying gender hurts? Yes, I think what I needed, what I what I felt I needed to do was show that gender actually does hurt, which is that people are very, very much hurt by gender, not just physically hurt, because of course those who get transgendered themselves are physically terribly hurt, not just psychologically hurt, but parts of their bodies are hacked off. The whole way their body functions is is uh, destroyed in its normal functioning. So there's terrible, terrible medical malpractice and medical hurts of people. People hurt in a very, very literal fashion, uh, but also people psychologically hurt, like the, the mothers of these men, the wives of these men, the children of these men, the partners and so on, are hurt psychologically. So I wanted to make it clear that gender was not just some, something to do with uh, clothes or, or something neutral, but it actually, actually very, very seriously hurts. Uh, next, next slide, please. Um, the Transsexual Empire you mentioned, um, incredible book, and I got, I, I got that when it first came out and just like, was was goggled when I read it. Um, it was so on target about so much. Is there anything that that no one would have thought, including um, Jan Raymond, could could happen that has happened? I mean, it, it you know it was it seemed so over the top things that she was talking about. But um, what do you think is you know was was something that that you and Jan Raymond would have said? No, that could never happen. Or was there anything? Jan's book was written, of course, at a, at a very different time in, in 79, but she was looking at something very, very important, which was the way that the, that the medical empire had invented and were promoting this horrifying practice, which generally, of course, included terrible, terrible medical harms, mostly to men. There were hardly any women doing this at the time. And she pointed out that it, this came from the oppression of women, it was the oppression of women that created these sex stereotypes now called gender, which made this, this terrible harm possible. And so she was looking at the beginning of the construction of that phenomenon, which was crucially important to do. I don't think she would have imagined that, she wouldn't have imagined Stonewall 
um, getting uh, companies to sign up to promise that they would discipline their their workers if they said a word wrong or, or uh, and so on. I don't think she could have imagined that, and probably I couldn't have in in 2014 either. But the the thing is that after her book, which went down really well, I mean there were many um, sexologists themselves who agreed with her book. Um, and feminists generally agree. I don't think anybody said, what a dreadful book, how dared she say this? I don't think anybody, any feminist said that at the time because there was no ideology that had been built up. It seemed absolutely clear. It was about the male medical profession and their harms, their malpractice and their abuse. And I think everybody understood that. But then, of yeah. course, the, the movement disappeared pretty much and we got the development of an ideology. She does, you know, she talks about um, transsexualism being a product of medicine as an industry, which you made reference to, rather than a, a transhistorical and a, essential aspect of humanness or a flaw in biological development. And I know um, Jen Billick has done a lot of work to um, to really substantiate how much this is um, medicine as an industry and how much um, the purse strings are involved. Uh, next slide, please. <clears throat> Um, yeah, did you, um, here we go. Um, this is just talking about, um, you know, cross-dressing transgenderism, um, as a subject of research by this, by the sociologists. Um, and he describes erotic interests of what he, he, he called male femalers, um, making no real distinction between cross-dressers and men who go further in their practice and seek to change sex. For they are all, in his view, male femaleers, and I like that because um, although there are, are differences in why males versus females trans, when it comes to males, it kind of doesn't matter why they trans if they're um, transgressing um, female spaces. And um, did you ever think that surgeons, um, you know, since this the medicalization uh, and and surgicalization, I guess, has been. Uh, um, is has been is such a, a tremendous part of this. Did you ever think surgeons would try constructing phallus simulacrums on girls? Um, and in what other ways has the has the gender cult gotten gotten worse? Well, in many ways, and we should probably look at them one by ones. But if I just talk about the surgeries for the moment, I do talk about uh, the creation of phalluses in the book. Um, and in fact, at the time, I was looking at an, an Australian website, a pro-transgender uh, website, which had got you know pictures of the operations on it. They thought this was really good. So they had the, the women's arms where all of the flesh has been removed to try and create these pseudo phalluses, which of course uh, never worked in the sense that a phallus is supposed to work. It was just a lump of flesh with all kinds of terrible health problems involved hanging on the front of a woman's body. So it's a very, very, very terrible thing. So yes, I was talking about that. Um, so I, I think I've got all, all of the surgeries were, were kind of well known. I knew what was going on. What is surprising is how much the industry of the surgery has developed. Um, there's far more going on now. You know, there are men having sort of, you know, 140 facial surgeries, for instance, because they're never happy with the way they look because they don't ever look like they're perfect woman. And just extraordinary things happening. Um, and interestingly, in, in the chapter on the surgeries and the terrible harms that the surgeries do to people, I was mentioning that the cutting off of young girls' breasts was not a big thing at the time. 
That is really new. It's a huge new development of the industry, very, very profitable. But I didn't know that yet. I knew it was starting to happen. So I just tried to look for a few articles about it. I found a couple of references in articles about adolescent girls and health, talking about how much they hated their breasts. That's all I could find at the time. Next slide, please. Um, you've unpacked queer politics in another book. Um, was that the single blow to feminism or was it more like a death by a thousand cuts? And I ask this because women ask what happened and sometimes think it was a singular event. Um, and, you know, your book and um, and many other books note that the most important aspect of queer theory for the development of a transgender movement was in theorizing, in its theorizing of gender. While feminists had sought to use gender in ways that suited their revolutionary purpose and aimed to demolish gender differences, the queer approach was much less radical and paved the way for transgenderism to be seen as an emblematic practice of queer politics. And um, and when we talk about, you know, um, you talk further about um, what queer theory did um, but that ultimately, in terms of gender, radical feminist theorists not seek to make gender a bit more flexible, but to eliminate it. Um, was this was this the death blow, or was it um, was it incremental, or or does it matter? Yeah, well, I I, I think queer theory, which is an aspect of, of postmodern theory, poststructuralism, uh, that it's really the theory of rampant capitalism. Um, from the 1980s onwards. It's a theory that goes alongside uh, the sort of conservatism of, of Margaret Thatcher and rampant capitalism. It appears not to, because it appears to be kind of um, transgressive, uh, but actually it's it's a theory which says that, you know, like postmodernism, queer theory, it says that nothing really matters and everything is a kind of fantasy that you can act out. Gender is a fantasy you can act out. Um, and so on. it wipes out the possibility of feminism because it's not needed. But what it also said, what queer, queer theory did to lesbian feminism was to make us out to be um, absurd and anti-sex and sort of against the run of history, really. I mean, it, queer theory was a huge attack on lesbian feminism. But we need to remember that it came from a time. It came from the time of Thatcherism in the 1980s, for instance, um, when all social movements were being destroyed. The left was being destroyed. I don't know if you ever had a left in America, but we did here in the UK. And that was being destroyed at the time. So all progressive movements were being undermined and destroyed with this rampant surge of triumphal capitalism. Uh, and so it's not just feminism. It's not just lesbian feminism that suffered from that. So I don't think we can say queer and postmodern theory was it at that moment. Not it was the, not certainly not the only cause. Uh, next slide, uh, please. Yeah, we we had a left um, in the United States, but it was primarily focused on things like civil rights, which is a worthy thing, um, and protesting against the war in Vietnam, which was phenomenally divisive. Um, it, it was the most divisive thing until you know the trans nonsense came around. Um, but, you know, um, is the psychological harm worse for girls and young women than for boys and adolescent males and older men? And and I'm asking because transing, um, coining a word, seems to reinforce male socialization in males um, who, you know, how what is more male than thinking that you can have whatever you want, including being a woman? Um, 
So trancing reinforces male so that male socialization in males, but devastates the psyche of of girls and women. <clears throat> um, I mean, it, and and I uh, and I wonder, um, was this um, making it a uh, a medical issue um, part of the part of the psychological harm, or just recognizing what psychological harm was being done? I'm not sure that I can exactly talk about, uh, ex explain whether it's worse for girls or boys. It's incredibly different. And I think we're going to talk about that later on because of course, um, for boys, there's the sexual masochistic excitement of apparently going down in their status. Um, whereas for girls, the possibility is raising their status. So in theory, there's psychological advantages for girls. I mean, they are definitely going to get paid more, for instance, and they'll feel they are likely to feel safer on the street because the male status is superior. But of course, there are all kinds of other ways in which women are damaged, particularly through their bodies and their fertility and so on. So the phenomenon is totally different for girls and boys because we are in a hierarchy and gender is a hierarchy. So it means very, very different things. Yeah, a lot yeah. of the girls and young women who trans, you know, and, and ultimately detrans or desist will say that the only the only advantage was that if they could genuinely be perceived as male on the streets, they felt safer. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that was really the only thing. And, and it was not even a lot of them. I mean, you know, what, what are you doing? You've got these like five foot two little guys with like a little scraggly, you know, little scraggly so, half beards who just have to talk and have this like, you know, squeaky sounding like a pubescent voice changing. And you know that, um, that, you know, I mean, you knew even when you were looking at them that these are not these are not men, these are not males. Um, sort of sort of analogous to a lot of the if you read the, you know, the the stuff that the uh, male um, LARPing men, you know, the LARPing men, they will say their voices give them away. You know, they they insist that they pass, um, but that as as soon as they talk and they all sound like Har Harvey Firestein, um, people know that uh, even if, even you know that this is not a, this is not a woman. Um, and we all knew when we saw them because you get that uncanny valley feeling. Um, next slide, please. Can I um, just say, yeah, um, the um, one thing that they get they get out of girls and women who trans escape the male gaze. They are not constantly, constantly, and they must be aware of this, not constantly, constantly having their body parts looked at. They're not having to make parts of their body naked. They are freer in what they're allowed to wear. It must be extraordinary to be able to escape the male gaze. We know that because we became lesbians and they don't really care about lesbians. So you escape the gaze in that way. But that is... A, a huge advantage and it'd be nice to hear some of them actually talk about that whether it's on the street and escaping from the violence of men or just being sitting around in a social space they ex escape the constant and extraordinary vicious surveillance that men do to women yeah i mean some of these girls and young women will you know after they have bilateral mastectomies will talk about being able to go to the beach um in a male swimsuit um mm. and not have to wear a top um Next slide, please. You, you, there's, we're just, you know, we're talking about this now. We're, we're dissenting. Um, and I think the, uh, it's the next, next slide. Um, the, uh, um, so that we're, we're talking about this. We're dissenting, and it's incredible that a woman gets to uh, now gets to say, I have an opinion, and here's my opinion, and you can't send me to jail for it. 
Although, as we saw at uh, Feminist Question Time yesterday, um, that is still not the case in some parts of the world, um, in Germany, for example. Um, so this, there's this now dystopian newspeak, the term from the book 1984, just inculcated in every sphere of life, which is why I call it the gender cult or the trans cult, um, because it's very, very cult-like. And if you read about cults, it fulfills all the uh, descriptions of what happens in a cult. Um, what damage does this newspeak do to individuals, to societal institutions? What damage does the uh, the cult-like um, inculcation of language do? Well, obviously, it's crucial to change language if you're going to change society. I mean, political movements have always understood that, and women have always understood that. So, you know, we fought to get rid of the language of chairman, for instance, of meetings, and you know, we got. Chair, I mean, chair is much better. Uh, but now, of course, uh, there is another um, form of speech. I, I don't say new speak because I don't want to say anything positive or reference Orwell in a positive way. Um, but yes, now they have defeated us and introduced a whole new language that disappears women. And it is crucially important. These children are being trained in this language, which does not allow little girls to have any sense of pride in themselves or in their bodies, or even to recognize that they really exist. And women's rights, of course, have disappeared by the language. It's, it's absolutely fundamentally about the disappearance of the category of women and the possibility of women's rights. Yeah, the, yeah. the misuse of language I find very very disturbing because um it's uh i mean it's propaganda it's what it's what happens in a cult um the fact that um you know that anybody could ever say um you know oh trans women are women um I, I find absurd i was talking to a surgeon once who does these these surgeries um and i said you don't actually believe you're making these guys into women do you and he just kind of shrugged and said well they believe it um so you know, and when you talk to people and, you know, they're speaking unguardedly, they know they're not, you know, not being recorded um, and, and they have no fear of um, uh, of losing their jobs. Um, it is clear that nobody believes it. Nobody actually believes it. And if there were, you know, stickers up all over the place saying we don't believe your phony pronouns, um, <laughs> you know, it would take away one of the greatest sources of um, of what these guys consider support and validation that everybody actually believes this nonsense because if you talk to people, if you get to know people um, and if they're speaking whispered unguardedly um, in moments where they can speak freely, um, then it's clear they don't believe it. 99.99999% of people in the world don't believe it, including the people that are dead now. <laughs> they didn't believe it either. Um, can we back to that slide for a minute? Cause there's some interesting stuff there about, um, um, about uh, transing kids. Uh, uh, I don't know if it was, uh, it was the one that was, uh, the, there we go. Physicians are faced, and this is, this is something that you talked about that is very, very troubling is the transing of kids. Um, you know, physicians are faced with the difficulty of distinguishing children whom they consider to be genuinely in need of being transgendered from those many who, as they readily admit, are likely to have worries about gender, but do not wish to be transgendered when they are adults. 
Um, and the NHS pamphlet does not create confidence in the process by which this is accomplished. As puberty approaches, and this is how they do it, as puberty approaches, the leading clinics will make a careful assessment of which children are almost certain to develop as transsexual adults and which are unlikely to do so. No physical test is available for detecting and measuring gender variants that may develop into adult dysphoria and transsexualism. Hence, clinicians must rely on the young person's own account of his or her feelings or information from the parents about the way the child talks and behaves and on psychological tests. The main indicator that they use, though, is likely to be the response of the child to the physical changes of early puberty. I mean, how many, you know, four-year-olds say, I believe I'm, I, I want to be called Chevrolet because I think I'm really a car. Um, or, you know, I, I, I want to think, yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Um, so, and it's, and it's different for boys and for girls. Transing is very different for girls. Um, or, or is it, um, is transing children more homogenous in terms of causative factors, whether it's a young girl or boy? I, I find this like so troubling it's, that it's just like, you're asking a four-year-old or even asking a 12-year-old who can't even consent to a tattoo do you want us to, you know, mutilate your body and cause permanent damage? What I, uh, for the book, I looked at for my chapter on children, the transcripts of the court cases of the family court, where they were deciding whether they should trans a child or not. The doctors who wanted to trans a child had to go to the family court and set out their evidence. So the doctors had to speak and say what they thought. Um, and in the case of an eight or nine year old boy, for instance, I was extraordinarily shocked to see that the doctors would sort of make the boy do a twirl almost in front of them and say, look, you know, so obviously a girl, so elegant, look at the hair. It was unbelievable, so incredibly superficial, based on horrendous stereotypes. And I, I, looking at all that stuff was really, really, really shocking to me. And of course, probably they realized this because the transgender activists fought to have the court cases removed so they could just get the children transgendered without going to the family court in the future. But the fact that we have those cases is wonderful evidence of how incredibly shoddy and uh, viciously misogynist and sexist those judgments were. It was kind of extraordinary going through that. Um, next slide, please. And again, I'm still, you know, I still find very troubling the transing of kids, and I'm I'm glad you talked about it a lot. Um, you do say that the transgendering of women and men needs to be considered separately because they are very different phenomenon. They are, however, usually run together in the literature as if they were but two faces of one single practice. The main difference stems from the fact that gender is a political category that signifies caste status. I think this is this is really important. Um, you know, you go on to talk about um, members of the inferior caste, women having quite a different experience when they transgender, which we just which we just talked about. Um, men who transgender find the existence of women who have trans who have transitioned useful because they can be seen in the absence of any recognition of the differences to confirm the confirm the authenticity of their own practice. And one of the things that um, as as this unfolded after the book came out that I, you know, kept in my head when I started seeing what the trans, you know, the trans cult, the gender cult started um, asking what they started pushing for is that all of it um, was in the service of men who um, got sexual gratification from, you know, pretending that they were women, um, the transing of kids, the transing of everything else. 
all seems to be rooted back in in just collateral damage um, that will support the fact that oh we were really like this from childhood oh this is this is something that's normal and natural everything that they do everything if you want to figure out why they're doing it um, trace it back it's just all collateral damage that you can kind of trace back to the fact that this is a men's sexual cult. Um, is, is just this, say something, say yeah. something. When I wrote a, a first wrote seriously about transgenderism using the men's biographies back in 1990 and anticlimax, I didn't know that it was about men's um, sexual practice. I didn't know it was a, ma a masochistic fetish and fantasy. And in fact, I, I assumed that it was about homosexuality, interestingly. Um, so I got that wrong at that time. That's because, of course, there was you know, not very much information out there. There was nothing to suggest that it was sexual, really, at that time. Um, of course, for this book, I knew that it was. And I was reading the sexologists, I was reading the fantasies, and I had all the stuff in there about men you know, sticking used tampons up their bottoms in order to get um, erections uh, and so on. So that was one big difference between when I started writing about this and now. And I think that's a big change. I think both that book and quite a lot of other work that I've, I've done in between um, Gender Hurts and Now is really has, has helped in getting the, fa the fact that this is a, a sexual fantasy, a rather unpleasant uh, fet fetish and perversion understood. Far more people are saying that now. It's far more generally recognized. Um, so yeah, that's that's something that the book did help to do. I, I don't, and I think there's um, not always a realization that um, that uh, the sexual component of it um, is um, is promoted for these guys um, by the manipulation of gender, um, by the idea that there is you know, this feminine essence that these guys somehow have that we can't measure because there's no tests. I mean, that, and that, um, and that uh, they can somehow enter into this completely different existence um, just by saying, well, I feel it in my head, um, except that they usually feel it further south on their bodies. Um, <laughs> um, and I, 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 and it again, it's it's particularly troubling that this is being foisted on kids. Is is what about transing kids though? Is this is that conversion therapy? I mean, therapy. Um, it, it, to what extent is it just simply using um, kids as collateral damage, or is genuine homophobia and lesbophobia? Um, I don't. I mean, politically, what do you what do you think about that? I, I don't did, think any uh, of us yeah. were thinking about that. Then. I I I. I called the chapter in my book um, Gender Eugenics, and I did, I'd made a lot of comparisons with the eugenic practice of the early to mid-20th century, uh, which also caused um, uh, sterility, of course, and attacked uh, organs, sexual organs. Um, so I definitely made the argument, and I still think, that the, the desire to wipe out homosexuality lies somewhere in the mix. And in fact, the report in, in this country on the Tavistock Clinic said that that seemed clear from some of the things that doctors and practitioners were saying. So heterosexualizing kids is a very important part of what's going on. The vast majority of the girls, for instance, in one study, more than 80% were already same-sex attracted at the point at which they, they decided that they were 
um, at the behest of the medical practitioners that they, they could be transgendered. So certainly it's about wiping out lesbians even more, I think, because there isn't a whole category of lesbians who are sexually excited by wearing men's underwear, whereas the vast majority of the men who transgender, they are masochists and they're fetishists. So there's no, no such category amongst women. The great majority of women, of girls, it seems, are likely to be able to go on to be lesbians and will do so if they are not mutilated by the medical profession. It's quite extraordinary. I think, you know, at the beginning of the women's liberation movement and lesbian feminism, we never would have imagined that tools which are like, you know, lobotomies, there were lobotomies done by on lesbians at one time, never would have imagined that tools like that could be brought back, but they are. Can you imagine the idea that lesbians would have the flesh of their arms removed to make nasty bits of flesh to hang on the front of their bodies? I mean, incredible violence. It's violence against lesbians. I have no doubt about that, but it's not usually recognized as such. Next slide, please. Um, more disturbing, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned lesbians, um, you know, uh, there are also trans widows. Um, what what, what are trans widows? What are trans widows okay. and what happens to lesbians whose partners now say they are men? Two so two kinds of Yes, I was very in intent in the book on talking about the direct harm to the partners, almost entirely women, entirely women in anything that I've been able to read about and see, of both the men who transgender and of the women who transgender. It's women who are the victims of these practices. That wasn't recognized at the time, and I'm very sad to say that it's not recognized now. These are the issues, uh, the harm to the partners is an issue which is absolutely not in the public spotlight and not understood. I wanted, uh, trans widows, for instance, are the women who whose husbands transgender on them and do what I call a form of psychological violence. Um, it's not true there's nothing going on. There's a good website now, a trans widows website, which is great, where women can get some support. At the time I wrote the book, there was absolutely nothing. All the websites just told the women they should support their men who were involved on a heroic quest. The friends, the neighbours, the doctors, everybody told the women that they should support their men. But we need to understand what happens to these women. What happens is that the men usually came out quite suddenly, like they'd walk down the stairs in a ball dress they'd managed to buy. Goodness knows how they got the size. And their wife who was just watching the television would turn around and go, what? And then she was suddenly expected to know that not only had she lost her relationship, there was usually no sexual relationship thereafter. And how could you have a relationship with a man who is just being a fantasy? Um, and he expected her to pretend she was a lesbian and go on having sex with him as a lesbian, if he, if he did that practice at all. Um, she's, she discovers that money is disappearing as he buys all these costumes. She loses her friends and neighbors who all support him, not her. She has the terrible humiliation of having to walk down the road with him uh, if he chooses to do that. Once upon a time, they hid and did it in the bathroom, but now they all want to do it in public spaces. She has to worry about her children and the harm to their children. And children, uh, the children of transgenders, there's now a website about that, but it's not recognized. And that harm is particularly serious for the girls because the men try to be girly with the girls and they want to put on makeup with their little daughters. And so the daughters are being pulled into the gross sexual fantasies of age regression, which is being little girls, which is very often a part of this, as well as being female. So that sort of gross abuse of children is a part of what's going on. 
In terms of the uh, the lesbians, it's a little bit... Oh, and I should mention the mothers before I go on to lesbians. The mothers suffer terribly because, like the wives, they lose somebody they've known for decades and had a relationship with. And they talk about loss. They all talk about loss. But for the mothers, it's since the birth of the child, they've always known this child was male, not female. And they have that terrible sense of loss. They're, the shared memories, the shared histories are gone. Uh, men who transgender, like women who transgender too, don't want to talk about when they were boys, when they were girls, because it invalidates them. So all that shared memory just goes. Now, if we move on to thinking about the harms to lesbians, in a lesbian couple, um, one, the, when one, one decides to be a, a male impersonator, the lesbianism of the partner disappears. They've been heterosexualized, not by their choice. So I see it as, as a kind of psychological violence in that relationship too. Very often the women lose their, um, their community that they have been in forever. If they've been involved in lesbian activism, they can no longer do that because they've been heterosexualized. Often the women still remain in a community of butchies and transgenders that they've been in before, so they don't actually lose in that sense. Then the woman has to spend an enormous amount of energy supporting the fact that her partner has supposedly transgendered. So she must be careful not to mention his girl, her, the woman's girlhood, for instance. Um, she must pretend that she believes in the masculinity and support it. She often has to do the injections, which is a pretty terrible job. So the, the harm and the, uh, the hurting for the, for the lesbian partner who wishes to remain a lesbian and recognize her lesbianism instead of hiding it, with injections and operations and so on, is very, very severe. Now that's not being recognized yet. I think it's interesting that what we've had really quite successful campaigns, at least in this country on children, uh, we're beginning to have um, reasonably successful campaigns to allow women to actually have free speech. I mean, free speech wasn't even a problem 10 years ago, then it became so, and now we're starting to win on that one. We're beginning to be reasonably successful in getting the men out of sports. But actually recognizing the psychological violence against women in relationships, uh, women as mothers, uh, against children and so on, that is simply not being seen as yet. So we've got a really, really long way to go on that. Yeah, there was a question about um, what about lesbians who do go with this man and, and, and they don't. Um, not willingly, anyway. There are, unfortunately, some young lesbians who are um, coerced um, into dating and sex with these men and suffer really trauma after that because they realize they've been raped. Um, but the rest, and, and again, I spent some time reading, you know, these sites, you know, the trans male sites. Um, if you can stomach it, it's very instructive. Um, the women who say that they're lesbians and they're happy, you know, and I have a trans girlfriend and so forth. Um, if you read, you know, their own admitted histories, they're all bisexual or straight because they've only dated um, cis men and trans women you know or they've dated cis and trans women and cis and trans men so they're all bisexual or straight by their own admission um lesbians do not willingly get with these guys at all um it, uh, next slide please does indulging any aspect of uh, particularly the, the male trans um inevitably take some rights away from women um and if you were going to write or rewrite this book today, would you simply add things or would you do a more substantial rewrite? Um, first question really is, you know, 
about about the rights of women. Um, is it inevitable that if you give give these guys anything that they want, that it will always um, take away some women's right? Or is there a way to do it that doesn't take away some women's right? Because, um, I mean, you talk about uh, um, really probably what, what some women believe is really the only um, true solution, which is a which is second separatism um, um, and just, you know, forbidding male entry into any, any groups. Um, is there, is there any way to, uh, to accommodate these guys that doesn't take away some women's right? No. And we shouldn't have to do any accommodating. It's their own sexual fetish and practice, and they should go back to doing it in the bathroom or on weekends away as they did in the 1960s and 70s. They shouldn't be expecting to do it out in public and affecting women in the ways they do. Obviously, the idea that men can be women totally undermines the category of women, which underlies all of the rights that we have um, through the Convention on the Rights of Women and all of the recognition that feminists fought for for decades, that women require uh, special spaces, freedom from violence, representation, all of those things that we fought for are totally just overturned by the idea that men can become women. I mean, it's not going to happen because we're fighting back um, in all of these ways. Uh, but yes, um, obviously, the idea that we're supposed to respect men's sexual fetish as making them into women totally undermines feminism, it undermines women's rights. But what I think is not well understood yet, um, because a lot of people say, oh, you know, they just let them alone, let them do their little thing in public or whatever, is that the very idea, the, the, the practice of being in public Imitating a woman, mocking a woman, is in itself extraordinarily insulting to women and it affects the way a woman feels. It causes a, a, a psychological harm just to have to see these men in the workplace, let alone be required by the workplace to, to, um, to support their fantasies by pretending that you think that they're women. Uh, what needs to be understood, and I didn't have this in that book, but I did have it in my next book, penal imperialism from 2022, is that woman face, as we now tend to call it, needs to be understood like blackface as tremendously insulting to women. Men should not get to pretend to be women in public in the same way in which white men should not pretend to be black men and so on. It's, a, it's an abuse by members of the ruling class and it's extremely insulting. So no, there cannot be any uh, tolerance of this practice as people don't tolerate blackface. They don't say, well, it's okay. They just want to walk down the street or go wherever dressed up as black. What's the problem with that? Well, there is a problem. And in the end, what these uh, this fetish behavior generally does it, it undermines the whole idea of equality and equality categories, the whole idea that there are categories of person that require special legislation and protection and regard on the grounds that they are oppressed groups. It's all dis disappeared by men's fetishes. Men, men fetishize being disabled, men fetishize being black or indigenous, men fetishize being women. Actually accepting that they could enter these categories destroys those categories. It destroys the politics of equality and rights. It destroys everything we've taken for granted for decades. And why is it happening? Because there's this huge respect for what gets men's willies up. I mean, incredible, really. incredible. We should lose the whole concept of inequality because of men's erections. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I I pass it to people. I say, well, you know, guy wants to like wear a wig and a dress and makeup and and you know, and play make believe woman, phony pronouns at all with willing participants in his private life, um, and no one would care. Um, and in some ways, that's true. Because um, back in the day, 50, 60 years ago, the few of them that were around, that's what they did. It was in their private life. And shame um, and fear of ridicule kept them from, from doing this in public. I kind of don't care if a guy behind, you know, behind his uh, um, his own four walls wants to, to play this with, with other dudes that do it. Um, once it steps out into the, into the public arena, though, um, it becomes... Um, it's it's okay to ridicule it. It's really okay to it's okay to ridicule that which is ridiculous. Um, and it's ridiculous for some man to say, "I'm really a woman." Fine, go home, play woman with some other guys. I don't care. Um, but it, sh it the whole rest of the world should never ever have to participate in it. And that's the you know that's the thing that um that's the crux really now of what the whole gender cult is trying to do is make sure that the entire world has to participate in it. And we have um, to support the fetish and help them to get their it. erections. We're all required to do that. Yeah. Can I say about them practicing only in their own bathrooms and their homes, there is still usually a woman and maybe kids in that house who yeah. are at some point going to have to see this. And for instance, in terms of nappy fetishism, which is of related fetishism, which goes along with transgenderism, where men dress up as female babies in nappies and require to be treated yeah. as babies. I mean, there are how, um, houses in which men have actually built nurseries for them themselves in the basement and the woman has to play along sometimes the woman yeah. has to change their nappies i mean no these men if they want to do this they have to go somewhere maybe the top of a mountain but they might be a walker i mean the problem is there is nowhere really private for them to go that is not going to cause some serious offense yeah that's why i said if they want to do it with each other that's fine just like keep the rest of the world like all women <laughs> Um, yes, just, yes. just not, out of not anywhere that women are. No, okay. not anywhere. Um, if you were going to write this book or rewrite it today, would you just add things? Would you do a more substantial rewrite? Um, you know, what would you do to, you know, would you add like, you know, new appendix 2024? Or would you, would, would you really substantially rewrite the book? I won't rewrite it unless I'm asked to. I can't do that. The publisher would have to ask me, um, and they may. I don't know. I did rewrite. Uh, I did a new edition of Beauty and Misogyny because it sold really well. I don't know how well this one is selling. Uh, but I should say that the re the I, the things I've added are in Penile Imperialism from two years ago, uh, where I talk about... Um, more about women's spaces and sports and politics. And I talk about all the harassment that the um, the activists are doing, all of the terrible abuse of women, and in, in some cases now violence against women to try and stop us speaking and stop us opposing what they're doing. And I, so, and I talk about language there too. So I think in a way I've done the update. It's two whole chapters of penile imperialism talking about what's happened since. Um, to, to kind of, um, wrap up, I mean, is, we're starting to see at least some, some good things happening. Is the gender house of cards starting to topple and what will it take to destroy it for good? Well, to destroy it for good, 
unfortunately, will require something fundamental. Um, back in the 1970s in the women's liberation movement, we understood that femininity, the beauty practices that women had imposed upon them, societally imposed, there's just no other reason why women use readers would have, you know, high heeled shoes that they can't walk in unless this was imposed upon them. It makes no, no sense, absolutely. Or that women would be in half naked clothing and so on. So we understood in the 70s that femininity had to go. Susan Brown Miller wrote a whole book called Femininity um, saying what problem it was. These days, because, you know, we're such a long way from feminism and there's such no really a strong movement now, women can get really cross if you criticize femininity. But of course, femininity has to go. The idea that women should wear uh, crippling shoes, clothing that shows them half naked, that they should depilate, have long hair, makeup, all of that stuff, making them into sex objects um, for men's excitement in the streets uh, and so on. The idea that that has to go, women can get quite upset about that now. It used to be completely understood but of course we do have to get rid of it. Men learn all of their moves from their mothers, first of all, doing femininity in the home and getting dressed for going out, all of that stuff, which the um, men who transgender talk about, watching their mothers do all of those really quite uh, unpleasant practices to themselves that the patriarchy requires. We have to get rid of the femininity in the home. We should need to make sure that there are no school teachers wearing high-heeled shoes and doing this stuff and modeling themselves so that boys can be sexually excited by it, so they can recognize how these are coordination and those practices goes together. So of course we have to get rid of femininity. We have to get rid of gender in the sense of femininity and masculinity because they're the practices of dominance and submission. Now this is bigger and it's more long-term. And at the moment we do not have the strength of analysis to make to be able to talk about that. None of the books coming out or hardly any of the books coming out on this issue even mention that we actually have to get rid of makeup for instance. But how do we how do we abolish gender? I mean, education. Do we try to educate men? Do we educate women um, or separatism or anything else? How do, how do we abolish gender? And, I, I, you know, I have to well, solve to this begin with, yourself in the next minute. But to being to begin with, we need to have feminist analysis and activism. We need to get out there and women need to be protesting these practices. Um, you know, once upon a time in the early 1970s, there were uh, 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 protests against the Miss World contest. So, well, there are there are areas and issues right now that we can be protesting. I mean, ideally, we want thousands and thousands of women on the streets in their flat shoes and their jeans and their short hair, just protesting and saying how grotesque, utterly grotesque it is, the sort of um, you know stereotypes and. N nasty appearance that women are supposed to have these days. And I, I live in a in a town by the seaside, and I watch people come down to the beach in the summer. The, the young girls and women have shorts that are up their backsides and showing their buttocks. The men have long shorts nearly to their knees. It, it's it's a very grotesque display, and I don't understand why women are not horrified, why why we don't all feel humiliated by seeing that, and why we're not all furiously angry. But until the elimination of femininity becomes part of feminism again, we've got no chance of getting rid of transgenderism entirely. We might push men back into their bedrooms and out of public space, and I think we're on the way perhaps to doing that. But there's no way we're going to get rid of the practice, unfortunately. It it is was very funny to me that um, 
one of the biggest protests last year in a way was what happened to Bud Light. Um, Bud Light was the quintessential beer for good old boys scratching themselves, watching football. They would just down, you know, a case of Bud Light. And, and so, um, you know, the, the beer maker, um, they get Dylan Mulvaney, um, um, a man, um, LARPing as a woman as their spokesperson for this, for this, you know, for this redneck beer. Um, and they lost billions and billions of dollars. Nobody buys Bud Light anymore. Very few people buy Bud Light anymore. They were even selling it for like $2 a case and nobody would buy it. So, you know, that was men, um, you know, essentially, mostly men, um, doing the kind of action that you were talking about. But it is effective. If that was, if there was something, some product that it was millions of women um, instead of millions of millions of men um, boycotting, that is effective um, because it, it you know, really, it, uh, it affects things financially. Um, so is it worth trying to educate men or educate women um is separatism a viable option i don't know that how much it's directly related to this issue i do believe that for a strong feminist movement we have to start with absolutely women only everything and we have to what we really need is women only theory making women only ideas women only thinking and you're not even able to do that now because of course the internet doesn't offer these possibilities but back in the 1970s and 80s women could get together in rooms and create theory and create rage in a way it's very very difficult to imagine today so yes um the the a women-only movement, women-only meeting together, women-only theory production, all of that is absolutely crucial. I don't know that it's how it directly has an effect on, on transgenderism today, but obviously men should not be in any of women's spaces and they should not be in our meetings, they should not be in our conferences, they should not be injecting their erections into any spaces anywhere near us, I do think. We have one minute left. Um, what do you want most want readers to take away from the book? Um, well, what I needed to do at the time was simply raise awareness of the issue. And I think the book really, really helped to do that. I'm encouraged on looking back at the book to see how much it covered, actually. I thought maybe I'll think it's a bit sort of old fashioned or a bit out of date. I don't think that. So I still think it's worth people, women, um, reading the book. I don't know what I want them to take away. The fact that we need to fight this, I guess. And that's happening. A movement is developing. Lots of women are getting really, really, really angry. And it's fantastic to see. Furious and funny with it. And that's what I want. Women getting together to actually fight this monstrosity of men's fetish behavior. I love it. Love it. Thank you very much, Sheila. Thanks for writing the book and thanks for being here. And thanks very much uh, for all of the questions and the discussion, Marion. Thank you. Right.